embers flaring, simmering tension, anger boiling over. A lot of the language that we use to describe the bursts of violent emotion that can result in the murder for a murder mystery have to do with hotness and heat. It's an image so common that I don't think we even give it much thought. The association of a volatile or escalating situation with a rising temperature that makes everything feel out of control is automatic. For crime fiction, where every story involves some kind of boiling over incident and then the investigation of its aftermath, I think it's worth looking a little more closely at this association between heat, emotional volatility and violence. When the world itself is getting hotter, and more and more places are experiencing extreme heat in summer, it feels rather grimly appropriate. And so today we're experiencing murder in a heat wave. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. This is the second part of She Done It's Mysteries of Summer trilogy, in which I'll be taking a closer look at how writers from the golden age of detective fiction incorporated the classic elements of an English summer into their murder mysteries. Today we're looking at heat and heat waves, but you can find the first episode, which was about cricket, in your podcast app now, where you can also subscribe so you don't miss the last instalment. The heat of summer has proved to be a very useful tool for the detective novelist. From Agatha Christie's classic opening scene of sunbathers roasting themselves like so many pieces of meat in 1941's Evil Under the Sun, to the boiling hot murder scene set in 1950's Dublin in Benjamin Black's A Death in Summer, there are plenty of instances where turning up the temperature has also resulted in turning up the tension and the drama in a mystery. And so to understand why this is such a common trope and why it works so well, we really need to go back to basics and think about why heat does such strange things to the human temperament. Being hot is a pretty unpleasant sensation, of course, and when we're uncomfortable, we act out beyond our usual behaviour. But there's something peculiar to summer heat, and being hot in summer, that seems to have a particularly powerful effect on us. And of course, to dig into this, I had to enlist an expert. And I think there's something about heat waves and mystery stories that centre around summer and holidays and so on in general, in that they're times when we're taken out of our normal routine and we're therefore either acting slightly differently, maybe we're not paying attention as much as we normally would, we're in a holiday mood, or we might be slightly different from our normal selves. You know, I think the hot and bothered English person either in a heat wave or on holiday abroad is a real staple of the genre. This is Cecily Gayford, an editorial director at Profile Books and the editor of numerous anthologies of mystery stories. Her latest, Murder in a Heat Wave, required her to think deeply about this combination of heat and crime fiction. Each story she picked for this volume, by authors including Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham, John Dixon Carr, Rex Stout and others, exhibits some facet of this trope, from the heat as the motive for the crime to the heat as the way the murderer tries to get away with it. 
I don't want to spoil the solution to any of her selections, but the book is well worth getting hold of if you'd really like to immerse yourself in these ideas. One thing that she discovered, she explained, was that the way heat is handled by writers of literary fiction is slightly different to how it appears in crime fiction. But in both instances, the rising heat helps to create that narrative arc of action, reaction and resolution. I think there's a kind of narrative heightening that happens in heat waves. You know, they intensify things. And in literary novels, that often is used as a device to bring the narrative to a fever pitch. But I think in crime fiction, it's often used as a way to suggest that someone's going to really lose it. And that makes sense to us because everyone's had that experience of thinking, I am so hot. (laughs) I cannot bear my family anymore. I cannot bear this tube carriage. (laughs) The boiling over metaphor is a good one, right? You're kind of heating what might have otherwise been a stable situation until something dramatic happens. Then at the end, there's going to be a thunderstorm and everything will be resolved. In literary fiction, Cecily says, heat is often used as a more general atmospheric tool to make a novel feel tense and that some kind of explosion is inevitable. With crime fiction, though, the reader usually knows roughly what the pattern of the story will be before they start reading. There will be a crime, it will be investigated, and it will generally be solved by the end of the book. So the heat element has to slot into that pre-arranged contract between writer and reader somehow. Occasionally, though, you get a book that seems to show the influence of both ways of using heat as a literary tool. There are novels like Iris Murdoch's The Nice and the Good, which follows a group of characters in a country house over the course of, I think, a a week and a a very intense heatwave in Dorset. Murdoch's concerns are certainly to do with relationships between the characters She also has, as you'd expect, a sort of philosophical underpinning of the novel. It's about the difference between being nice and being good. And she explores that through the different characters. But there's also, it starts with a death. And then there's this blackmail plot that underlies all of it and gives a narrative which might otherwise feel a bit like a number of somewhat self-obsessed people feeling too hot near the sea. Gives it a kind of propulsion and a, a sinister quality which seems connected to the heat. You know, it's not just everyone's hot and feeling a bit lazy and wishing it would rain. It's kind of like it's oppressive and it's the pressure is being brought to bear in the characters in the same way that it's meteorologically there in their environment. And I think, I mean, she's an obviously an amazing novelist and an amazing plotter, but I think I would be very unsurprised if she wasn't inspired by detective fiction in some way to create that synthesis. The Golden Age detective novel being something that we associate very strongly with Britain in general and England in particular. There's also something about making this heat that is rising an English heat that seems very effective. The English summer being famously a frequent washout, the hot days when they come punch just that little bit harder than in places where people are more accustomed to the heat. Not all of the stories are set in the UK, but the ones that are, I think, certainly use the boiling hot English summer day as a very English trope, I think, because if you live in Britain, you know that actually those days are quite far and few between the summer fate that is on a blazing hot June day is much more likely to be actually on a kind of drizzly, cool, maybe I'll bring a cardigan kind of day. So I think there's a sort of 
nostalgic aspect to it as well. I think it's definitely part of a created version of England's which a lot of the novelists of the golden age were very interested in themselves and instrumental in creating for the rest of us. Places like St. Mary Mead's have really entered the consciousness of the nation. (laughs) So I think that's use of it as an understood perfect backdrop. This idea of the perfect, sweltering, unspoilt summer's day as the perfect backdrop for the most evil of all crimes is a very interesting one. It harks back to a very old idea in storytelling, that of the memento mori, the reminder that death always stands close, and connects to the notion of et in Arcadia ego, that even in Arcadia, an idyllic place, death still exists. And would there even be an Arcadia without the reminder that everything is finite and mortal? Detective fiction plays with these dichotomies, Cecily says. All fiction, to some extent, relies on pairs of opposites, but I think with crime writing that's very pronounced you know you have like the detective and the murderer and you have the secrets and you have the reveal and then you know you sort of also have the place of safety that is violated and I think that's very appealing to crime writers the idea that you take your characters to a place that seems perfect and safe and almost like Eden really and then you reveal the serpent who's been there all along And then at the end, you've identified this canker in the rose, the thing that has been secretly there undermining the perfection the whole time. And you're able to identify and expel it. And I guess the sort of assumption then is that actually everything is really is now great. You know, like you can get to a place where evil can be neatly excised from your world and cast out this desire to create a cathartic loop for the reader and I think beautiful English summer days and church fates and these cultural touch points are a part of that. The same is true of holidays, especially summer ones. That perfect getaway in the perfect place. How could something as awful as murder coexist with so much wonderful peace and tranquility? Murder mysteries exist to show us exactly how, but then to neatly solve all of the problems so as not to completely undermine the impulses that lead us to idealise the holiday or the summer day in the first place. It's all very finely balanced from a narrative point of view. After the break, beware the seething mass of hatreds among the prize vegetables. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. 
I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use. And I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Although I do, of course, read a lot of full-length crime novels, sometimes I think you can't really beat the short story as a form for quickly getting lots of different takes on the same idea or theme. And so it is with Cecily's collection Murder in a Heatwave. Ten stories, all working with similar elements, that each provide a distinct perspective on what can happen when the temperature rises, and all those impulses that have been kept hidden start spilling out. It's the brevity of the short story, Cecily says, that makes it so satisfying as a form for crime fiction. Well, I think often they're vignettes. I think one of the ones that I was really pleased that I found is called Summer Show and it's by Julian Simmons and it takes place over the course of the prize vegetable judging contest at a summer fate. And I think that's a great example of how they take that summer holiday theme and then shrink it down to something you can do on a very small canvas. It takes place over the course of two or three hours, the story, and you don't need a huge amount of narrative development and they often center around one really clever idea you know there'll be a small number of protagonists an ingenious murder method and the key to the story is really just figuring out how that happened there aren't the things that you get in longer novels where you consider each of the suspects in turn and discard their motives and alibis and so on it tends to be more of how is this done type of thing in shrinking the crime story down onto this small canvas you do end up developing plot over character. But it is worth it when all the elements of the story snap into place in such a satisfying way. There's also a story called Fourth of July Picnic, which is by Rex Stout, who I think is quite an underrated crime writer who hasn't really had the same uh, renaissance as some of his contemporaries. But again, you know, that's kind of a small canvas to paint on that he makes a lot out of. They're almost kind of just plot, really. A lot of the time, like any of the characters could be changed for somebody else and the story would still unfold in the same way. But they have that very satisfying quality where everything just locks into place very quickly. Anything. Yeah, that's great. The best short crime fiction taps into that memento mori idea, taking something perfect and revealing with a few quick strokes the horrible reality. Julian Simmons' story, Summer Show, is a great example of this in that it focuses on something that seems trivial and unimportant, which becomes big enough to be a motive for murder. I love that idea of something that, in the grand scheme of things, is not a big deal. But when you get into the granular detail of people's lives, it can come to seem like a sort of life or death issue. And I think a lot of, again, those kind of classic English crime stories do that very well in that they go to places where it seems like people don't really have problems and then they reveal that underneath it's just this seething mass of hatreds and 
regret and resentment and like that, that it has all of the dark side of human nature that you would expect to find in Raymond Chandler or the more modern crime novels or, or, or noir from the same period that is set in like big cities where glamorous things happen and, and, and actually it's not unsimilar in these kind of like tiny English villages where everyone's retired. One of the core tenets of golden age detective fiction is this idea of fair play. The notion, of course, that the prime suspect needs to have been present in the story all along, rather than just introduced at the end for a big surprise reveal. As readers, we want to know that we had a fighting chance of working out the solution to the mystery, even if it happened to elude us this time. And setting a story in a hot summer atmosphere can bring some of this fair play quality to a plot. All of those motivations were already present in the scenario, the writer is saying and the heat just exposed them for everyone to see. I think a point that is made over and over again in, in summer-themed crime fiction is that a lot of this stuff is there, but people don't have the opportunity. But when circumstances change a bit, suddenly you have the option and people take it. And that, that holidays, that often we think of them as, as times of relaxation and enjoyment, but actually there's often quite, they're often quite dangerous. You know, you have big bodies of water and clifftop walks and lots of people who you don't know very well hanging around. And, you know, you're out of your own comfort zone and you're maybe not paying very much attention. And that, that sort of makes you vulnerable. So I, I can totally see that as a as a writer, it's great because you suddenly have all these like new murder methods, ways of explaining why somebody who has been a begrudging stepdaughter for 15 years is going to take action today. There's a really great example of this from the collection by one of the all-time greats of the short story form. One of the stories in the collection is called The Borderline Case. And then that is a Marjorie Allingham story that's set in London and I think it's a, just a, a brilliant evocation of the sort of heat wave in a city experience which I'm in London at the moment and you know in some ways there's a kind of holiday atmosphere but also like the heat reflects off the buildings it reflects off the pavements you know you really do feel like millions of people are being kind of heated heated up every day um, to boiling point that story is in a way it's a it's a clever kind of locked room mystery that actually takes place outside in a street. And there's a kind of very ingeniously constructed scenario where there's a murder, but it doesn't make any sense. And no one can work out how it happened. And I think it's not giving away too much to say that the solution hinges on someone having just got too hot and had enough. I've <laughs> sort of tried to just get rid of a problem and instead made it a thousand times worse for themselves. But not every heatwave story shows the evidence of the temperature rising in the way people lose their judgment or their cool. Sometimes the heat provides a clue to the detective when people act as if they aren't experiencing the height of summer at all. One of the stories that I love from the collection is called The Vindictive Dory of the Footsteps That Ran. That's a Dorothy Alsair story. And the murder weapon is ends up being hidden inside I think a roast chicken and the clue to the detective Lord Peter Whimsy is that like nobody would be making a, doing a roast in a heat wave so this is inherently suspicious 
and they have to kind of run upstairs and pull the skewer or knife or whatever it is out <laughs> and they can get the blood evidence from it. And I thought that was such, such a great like key to theatre because it's not what you're really expecting to happen, but also really clever use of the heat wave to kind of slightly wrong foot the reader, you know, because it does seem weird that they're doing this big meal, but you don't think, oh, that's inherently suspicious. You think that's just kind of weird. So whether you are sweltering in unseasonably high heat this summer or just thinking longingly of the summer that is yet to reach you, I hope you will spare a thought for the heatwave mystery, a highly proficient and entertaining little niche within classic crime fiction that is well worth exploring. Well, that, and keeping your eye out for suspicious characters who use their ovens when the temperature is soaring. This episode of She Done It was hosted by me, Caroline Crampton. Thanks to my guest, Cecily Gayford. You can find more information about all the mystery anthologies she's edited, including the one we discussed today, via the website for profile books, in the description for this episode, or at shedoneitshow.com slash murderinaheatwave. I publish transcripts of every episode, including this one. Find them all at shedoneitshow.com slash transcripts. This episode was the second in She Done It's Mysteries of Summer trilogy. Listen out for the final one coming on this feed soon. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more from me beyond the fortnightly episodes on this feed, join the She Done It book club, where I make extra bonus episodes every month for supporters. Find out more and sign up now at shedoneitbookclub.com slash join. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.